In this episode of Hysterionics, the tables are turned somewhat, and it's an episode, if I'm really honest, I've been avoiding because I don't like talking about myself. Last year, in the middle of COVID phase one, I decided to write, sit down and write my experiences of living with a serious mental health condition in corporate world. And in this episode, Neil and Keith are going to talk to me about the book, uh, why I wrote it and their views and to have a, a really open and honest and frank and maybe difficult discussion around why a conversation on mental health is so important in place of work, but now more than ever. So Keith and Neil, welcome. Uh, I'm going to sit back and it's over to you guys, I think. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be on with uh, with Keith. And yeah, it is turning the tide. I think um, it's unusual for you to get asked several questions rather than be asking them yourself, right? It is indeed. It feels, if I'm really honest, it feels massively awkward, but I'm going to go with it. I think we should always be pushing ourselves out of our comfort zones. It's a good thing. Embrace it, Tom. Uh, yes, I will embrace it. I promise. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to start with the obvious one, um, which, which is obviously, why did you write Breaking the Glass Floor in the first place? Uh, I, I think it was, it felt like the right moment. Why do I say that? It felt that I had some time out to think, uh, thanks to COVID. Uh, I wasn't spending so many hours on an aeroplane. Uh, I, over the last few years as I've been more and more comfortable talking about my mental health, I felt like I had tippy-toed around it and had talked about it in vanilla safe terms. And having seen or seeing a number of organizations, a lot of organizations that do the arbitrary, let's celebrate mental health week, let's have massage in the car park and shiatsu in the canteen. Um, I wanted to talk openly and honestly and frankly in stark and bold terms what it was like, what it is like to live with a serious mental health condition. Because if we do want to make a difference in uh, the workplace and we must make a difference in the workplace, we need to know the reality of what a lot of people are dealing with. We need to know in descriptive terms what a lot of people are putting a brave face on because those are our colleagues, those are our friends, those are people in our team. And I felt that somebody had to stick their head above the parapet and associate themselves with those very stark and difficult experiences um, from sleepless nights right through to suicidal thoughts. So it felt like the right time to do it. Um, I'm lucky. I'm of a certain age where uh, the, there's more of my career behind me than there is in front, perhaps, and therefore... Uh, if it if I do become stigmatized by it uh, in the wrong way, uh, I can probably survive that and, and cope it. I don't cope with it. I don't think I could have done it when I was 35. Definitely not when I was 25. And I suppose the final reason is how can I accept myself for having a mental health condition if uh, I can't help other people accept it? And 
I need to be able to talk about it for my own benefit. I need to be able to normalize it for my own benefit. So it was the right moment and the coming together of lots of things, really. And that, that, that's really interesting, Tom. Thank you. I think um, the last year has been a really interesting um, kind of point of reflection for lots of people. And it's, I think it's important that we we kind of document and, and talk about these experiences of yours. I think before we get into what the like the, the nuts and bolts of, of the book and your experiences that went into there, I'd like to know what the experience of writing it was like. So kind of thinking about that reflective process of getting all of this down on paper, what was that like? That's such a good question. It was cathartic. It was... Uh, it was cathartic with a huge weight of responsibility. I wanted to make sure that if I was going to sort of, um, what's the expression, <laughs> blow my uh, blow my armor? Uh, what's the expression? Um, uh, blow my powder, not keep my powder dry. I felt that I had one opportunity to do this and I had to get it right. I had to write it in such a way that people would uh, go, wow, I can't believe he said that, or thank God he said that, or that is so descriptive. Uh, it helps me better understand my husband, my team member, my boss, my whoever. So it was cathartic uh, with a huge weight of responsibility. I'm not going to say it was a fun experience. Um, it, it required me to lift the lid on some things that I had screwed the lid down on uh it required me to confront some stuff and i think getting my husband of 20 years david to write his perspective was really tough for him and really tough for me um it forced us as a couple to talk about some of the things he has to live with living with me and sharing a life with someone who has uh, a form of bipolar um but those conversations were cathartic and honest, and I think he benefited from it as well. So how long did it take, Tom, given you just mentioned that, you know, it, it wasn't particularly a fun experience and, and you, were, you were going deep into your, your psyche um, for many different reasons. It, did it take many drafts? Did it take a long time to write? So I, I think I should confess at this point and manage expectations. Uh, we, we call it a book and my imposter syndrome shudders at the thought of calling it a book it is deliberately a short read so it's basically basically a posh pamphlet um it's about an hour and a half to two hours wouldn't you say to read um and it's fast paced it took me it took me about three weeks okay um and i i probably wrote it in about four big goes okay and it's not an easy read for several reasons. It's not an easy read in terms of the style. I wanted the style to reflect what a state of mind is like uh, when it's going through a bipolar episode. So it rambles and it goes all over the place at great speed, I think. Um, but it took me about four weeks. Um, and then I sat on it and then I had a number of occasions. I had about a week afterwards where I would wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh my God, you can't, you can't put that out into the, into the world. What will happen? What will people think? Um, yeah. 
Well, I, I think in terms of, you know, whether you did the right thing or, or not, you know, from, from your perspective, from our perspective, you, you absolutely have. And, and, and raising the, the awareness of mental health and how it's treated in, in, in such a way in so many organizations can only do good. And, and obviously, you know, you mentioned in there, Tom, very early on around the fact that the world glosses over mental health and, you know, there's plenty of gloss out there, but some, some work is being done, but is it the right type of work? Um, and I, and I, I question that, you know, I haven't read the book whether actually there's enough being done in the right way. Would, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about that. So I, I think we are doing more. I'm just not sure we're doing enough. And I think the reason that we're not doing enough is because we still don't give appropriate status to the mind. So the, the mind for me is, is merely a muscle. It's, it's the muscle we rely upon the most. It's the one that is most fragile. It is the one that's most easily broken, but in some ways it's also the most strong. And yet we treat it as a second-class muscle compared to a physical muscle. So in the same way, uh, or in the way that we can say, I've pulled my back, I'm off to the physiotherapist in the office, and nobody bats an eyelid, or they shouldn't. Uh, or you can limp into the office with, with almost as a badge of honor on the weekend because you've run a marathon um, at the weekend. Uh, you, you can't do that with the mind. You, you can't say, look, I've pulled I've pulled my mind muscle. I'm going to, I'm just going to pop out for a bit of psychotherapy to get it back in order. Or you can't limp into the office mentally on a Monday and say, look, I, I really, I've really overstrained my mind muscle. I, it's limping. I need to do something about it. Um, and until we give the mind equal status, we will only really dance around uh, some of the solutions. And, and I'm not sure it's a bit, it's probably a bit chicken and egg, um, we, we probably need to come forward with more of those solutions in order to give the mind equal status to the body. Um, and and I, I still don't think that we talk in loose terms. Oh, yeah, 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 depression. Oh, yeah, 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 so-and-so's got uh, an issue. Okay, but what does that actually look like? What is the nature of what it's doing to them? What is going on inside their body? What is going on inside their mind as it happens? We talk in glib terms as if we understand the reality of suffering from a serious mental health challenge. And I don't think we do. And, and that's another reason I wanted to write Breaking the Glass Floor, to give unequivocal, stark descriptions around it so yeah i think we are doing a lot more we can talk a lot more about it i think famous people coming out about it helps um but we need to facilitate more conversation inside the organization and we also need to link mental the management of mental health inside the organization to great leadership um i'm doing a lot of work with organizations around now about mentally healthy psychologically safe working environments and that just boils down to great leadership yeah i think that there's a couple of really important points that you've made just there tom around the the understanding of these of these issues of these challenges that each of us face um and then the environments that we're then thrust into um i think when we look at organizations um the the mental health stigma the mental health challenges they're all in the 
it's it's hidden where I can't see it, whereas I can see a physical limp um, from your marathon. Um, and then as a result of that, then in the, the too difficult to deal with pile. Um, and so as a result of that, then there's this general lack of understanding, lack of appreciation of, of perhaps how widespread these challenges are, about how they're impacting lots of lots of people. And we, we haven't got the um, the not necessarily the, the we haven't got the balls to do it, but we haven't got the uh, we're not in an environment where we're comfortable enough or safe enough to be able to say, actually, this is what I'm feeling like this Monday morning, or it's Friday afternoon and I had this dreadful week and compounded that with with my own um, kind of in, individual circumstances i think our organizations aren't necessarily constructed in such a way um for that i, I totally agree and my view on that is we we over complicate things sometimes we, we we're scared to have conversations around mental health and actually the path to creating a different environment to the one you described, Keith, is to normalize mental health. Not wait until it's a, it's a problem and there's an issue, but uh, proactively treat mental well-being and mental health like we do physical well-being, which is uh, to have conversations with your teams around what, what are you doing to make sure that you're mentally strong and resilient? Um, what, what are you doing for your mind this week? Uh, which is the equivalent of going to the gym. You know, we don't go to the gym uh, when when there's something broken. We largely go to the gym where, to proactively make ourselves strong and healthy. Um, back to the mind not having the same status as the body. What are we doing inside the work environment to uh, encourage people to be mentally healthy and mentally strong? But there's a lot of hypocrisy in organizations because you know, everyone says, oh, let's celebrate Mental Health Awareness Week. Oh, yes, we've, we've got that shiatsu in the car park and massage in the restaurant. But, you know, nobody ever says at the annual general meeting, you know, we could have, we could have given you 2% more margin, um, shareholders. But uh, to do that would have meant having teams of uh, five instead of teams of seven. And we just didn't want to psychologically damage uh, our colleagues like that. Um, you know, and the hypocrisy is, and I see it all the time, organizations have uh, physical health and safety, you know, like hold the handrail, don't drink and a cup of coffee on the stairs, etc, etc. But they pay no attention to what's the mental health equivalent of that on any given wet Tuesday in March, not just when it's mental health awareness week, and they want to stick something positive uh, on the internet. So I think culture has to change a lot. Like that discretionary effort, Tom, you just mentioned around, you know, in, improving and increasing profit for an organization through looking after people in the right way is, is so crucial. And you're in the book, you talk about, you know, physical gyms are not just full of people who, who are looking to lose weight, but most of the people who keep them fit. And, and there's this idea that I'm off to spend time on my mind is, is brilliant. And why shouldn't that happen? You know, it shouldn't be frowned upon. And let's face it, it's only recently that a generation's been allowed to say, um, I'm going to go to the gym and come in a little bit later if that's okay. Yep. So why shouldn't that be the norm? Why can't I go and spend some time on whichever, whatever works for you, be it meditation, you know, mindfulness in, in whatever way, shape or form, right? 
I, I agree. And, and back to Keith's point as well uh, about organizations not being able to cope with that. You know, one of the things that I do in my day job is work with people on their unconscious bias. And one of the areas where unconscious bias is particularly strong is around mental health. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware that in publishing Breaking the Glass Floor, I would give myself a huge big label and people's unconscious bias would uh, potentially see that label of bipolar ahead of anything else that I become known for in their world. And, uh, and you know, and, and, and so I, I think we have to work on our unconscious bias around people with mental health. You know, they're not going to be as resilient. They're not going to be as strong. I can easily break them. Uh, I can easily overload them, which in some ways are true facts, but also not necessarily true. And, you know, organizations kill mental health through kindness sometimes you know we mustn't forget that you know so-and-so's on a burnout or coming back from a burnout so let's stick them in the corner and take their work off them and not overload them and let's be quiet around them and and all that that does uh through a lack of communication a lack of discussion a lack of adult adult conversation and dialogue is make the person coming back from a burnout feel even more stigmatized uh increase their undoubted levels of self-loathing and push them towards a second burnout Tom, you you talk about unconscious bias and there are obviously lots of different ways in which organizations are putting modules and curriculums together some of them brilliant some of them not so brilliant you talk in the book around um really thinking about how understanding the the reality of a sufferer's world and then adapting you know do you feel at the moment that a lot of the i call it training when actually it should be learning and development in a truer sense of the word do you think of it as too much of it is too generic you know you mentioned about the shiatsu and the car park etc do you think it's just too generic and it's not focused and it's not really thought through i think it's too tame <laughs> yeah yeah i i don't think we have the uh the honest discussion or conversation around what it's really like you know mm. about waking up at three in the morning in a cold sweat thinking how am I going to get through tomorrow? I, I don't want to wake up because when I wake up, if I go back to sleep and wake up, uh, I'm going to have to deal with tomorrow and I don't want tomorrow to come around. Um, you know, we, we don't talk about, uh, you know, medication. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people are on medication that the great majority will never talk about it. And the side effects are awful and sometimes you have to try three different medications and the adjustment period is absolutely awful Uh, the physiological impact the fainting the the nausea the extreme tiredness the the dry mouth through to the uh psychological side effects of of medication of getting used to medication we just don't talk in in that detail and I want us to be able to do that. And I think we have to be able to do that because I'm not sure we can drive meaningful change uh, unless we can. I think there's a big piece here around um, 
people being comfortable asking the questions because not everybody needs to be um, a clinical psychologist we don't need everybody to understand the, the detail about all of all of these different elements of dealing with a mental health condition um, but I think by not having any conversation about it and by just having this generic training or the shiatsu in the car park then it's almost it's the sticking plaster isn't it um, yeah. I wonder and whether I don't know if, if this is something that you've got more experience of now thinking about the clients you're working with and and based on the your experiences that have gone into the book I'm just thinking about how maybe the world has changed in the last year as a result of COVID um, and are we more conscious of our individual mental well-being um, and are we being a bit more purposeful in conversations because we're not seeing each other in the office all the time are we are we kind of kind of going to come out of this experience um, in a bit more of a positive fashion and think well actually these are people with children at home and whatever else is going on around them and maybe I shouldn't just expect some of the experiences you talk about in the book where it's just all about kind of hitting the next target hitting the next quarter actually we're, we're dealing with humans and we need to recognize that I sincerely hope Keith that that is if we take one positive thing out of COVID into the workplace it's that we went into COVID as employees and we came out as people um, and what I'm seeing in a positive way, although it has it brings its own challenges, uh, is that there is raw humanity going into the workplace that people are saying, actually, I, I need to share this with you because uh, my, my life as a, as a human, as a person is so impacted by what's going on at the minute. Um, I can't help but bring it into the workplace and, and push a discussion um and, uh, on a on a number of fronts and and so yeah i really hope that we do come out of covid being able to talk about things like this in a in a much more open way because i think covid has exacerbated so much of the the, the challenges that were there before taking a lid off of them in terms of people being able to cope and people needing time out to manage other parts of their life and people um being in situations where their mental health is impacted and it might not have been pre-COVID because all of a sudden they're feeling isolated and lonely and they're missing the the buzz and the camaraderie of being amongst people in the workplace. So yeah, I, I really hope we do. One of the things that really struck me um, in, in the book, Tom, was about the these expectations that we have of other people and of those on ourselves and then the how that piles up onto people. And so I'm just wondering now what you think about these conversations that we might be having a bit more now than we were, say, 10 years ago. Um, and whether that's going to lead to um, a more welcoming, a more well-being focused working environment. I, I think that so many of us walk around with a bully on the shoulder and you know i was born in 1972 i grew up in an age where we were pushed uh to be better than everybody else life was competitive from the age of five onwards and that just continued into the workplace so that um you know being on a graduate development program you were constantly encouraged pushed required to consider your strengths your position 
ahead of everybody else who was on top of the, who was in the graduate program and that just continued into the workplace of the 90s and the noughties and actually showing in a, a level of vulnerability and humanity would have because of unconscious bias at best but because of open discrimination at worst would have impacted you enormously and so I think many of us who are in our four, mid to late 40s upwards walk around with the bully on the shoulder because of that, what I've just described, and therefore push ourselves to do things uh, that are not good for us, that are the mental equivalent of running a marathon every day, which everybody would admit is nuts. And so I do hope that we can talk about workload and burdening and extricate it from, but what is your potential in this organization and how do we see you as a future leader of this organization? Because I think many of us felt that we did have to literally kill ourselves in order to be eligible and seen as a future leader. Tom, is it, you, you talked about... Um the fact that you know age boundaries you could you couldn't have come out and, and written this book if, if you're in the 20s and 30s and also you talk about in corporate life you know potentially someone saying to you you know it's not right for a leader to be able to show this empathy or this amount of emotion do you, do you think that still is the case do you think that's changed I, th I think, yes, I, th I think we have to be much more nuanced around what is emotion yeah i th i think often i i'm a very passionate person <laughs> and and one of the one of the positives about driving myself was that i always looked for best better and doing better and thinking that as a as a team we could achieve more and so i could get very passionate about things and uh you know that was described as having sharing too much emotion and you know, there's positive emotion and negative emotion. I think we need to be more nuanced around what it's appropriate to show. And I, I do think that because we, too many of us do work in organizational cultures which are a bit clannish or even cultish, where you can't bring yourself to work, there is an accepted norm around what is an appropriate uh, way of behaving, which is totally homogenous in so many regards in so many respects and therefore people feel that they have to switch off their emotion and that that drives toxicity and uh negative behavior so yeah we all have a responsibility to create uh, a healthy working environment and is that I, why you, you wrote in there tom in the book about you, you wrote this for for all of us and you, you talk there about you know, the different factors around not just words or phrasing or timing or toning, but, you know, people, these words that people use in the webpage can have a huge impact. Is that some of that relating back to that comment as well? Absolutely it is because, and we're all guilty of it. So we, you know, yeah. if you and I were in the office together uh, and I got cross with you and decided to punch you in the face, um, that would have consequences. <laughs> Uh, it would have consequences. It, I'd yeah, be fired. Sure. I might even get a criminal record. But because we don't give the mind equal status to the body, I can do the mental equivalent of punching you in the face and it, and it goes unnoticed. And, you know, often 
you know, me punching you in the face is packaged as, well, Neil, you're just too sensitive. Or, you need, yeah. or, or Neil, you need to toughen up. And, or that's just the way Tom is. You have to learn with it. Tom's great at his job. It's just that occasionally you get mentally punched in the face. No, we, we need to stop this. We need to take responsibility for our words um, uh, and make sure that we're not doing the equivalent of mental GBH. And that's not to say that we should not have difficult conversations, but I think an area where organizations are lacking is in the development of leaders and frankly, all colleagues to shape confident, constructive, healthy conversations, which can be challenging at times. That comment you just made there, Tom, about um, that's just the way Tom is. How, how many people who are listening now have heard that before? Oh, he always flies off the handle. Oh, it's, it's, it's getting to the end of the quarter. Oh, she's always like this. She's always like that with new team members. Um, and it's not only is that a dreadful thing to do to kind of almost, um, I, don't, well, I don't think people are lauding people look like this, but they're not challenging these behaviours in the workplace. I think that's one one issue. But also, if there's no way of me saying, actually, Tom, you might be always like this, but this is how you've made me feel. Um, when we just interacted in that way if there's no um, vehicle for me to do that then all that's going to do is reinforce the challenges that I've got with my own demons who are sat on my shoulder telling me that I'm I'm not good enough or that they were right last time they said it they're going to be right in the future Um, and so it's just it's this self-fulfilling sort of spiral isn't it I think Keith that life is always a deal this is what I if I get something I always need to give something so to that point uh if you give me an environment where i can talk openly about my mental health i also need to be cognizant of who i am and what my mental health is and what my uh behavioral impact is on other people's mental health so I don't know if that makes sense. You know, I I see so many leaders who are are, are not self-aware or unself-aware. And I think as leaders, we need to lead an environment which is psychologically safe. And a big part of that is I know the impact that I have. I know that I can fly off the handle. I know that I can be obtuse. I know that I can be political. I know that I can... um, I have unconscious bias. I know that I... um, Uh, can push my team too hard we need an environment which is psychologically safe and we need to also know that what we do with the impact that we have uh, through our behaviors I think one of the things that really struck me in the book Tom um, is where you, you start to come round to recognizing where your demons are and what you can do with them so I mean, part of the, the things that we're talking about here, I think, are about having the almost like the the language or the um, the dictionary, the, the ability to talk about these things in the office. If, if I if I know what words to use, then I'm not going to upset somebody. I'm not going to uh, or, or, or kind of I'm not going to cause an issue. But I'm I've got the confidence to have the conversation if I know what words to use, and I know that I've almost got permission to have these conversations. But I'm thinking now about how can you or how have you um, made the most of your demons in terms of you recognize that they're there and they're a part of you. And so rather than ignoring them and trying to be turbo Tommy, um, 
how can you acknowledge them and, and maybe can you build them in as, as, as part of your package? Is that part of your strength, part of your, your own humanity in, um, in the workplace when you're going into places? I think so. It, I mean, I spent so long pretending that I didn't have bipolar, pretend, hoping and praying or being angry about when was it going away? When would it not be there? And that fight to pretend it wasn't there, to not accept it, to not embrace it, the energy that that took and that the level of self-deception was actually, uh, was actually making it worse. So when I finally accepted that actually I had, um, you know, I had the mental health equivalent of something like diabetes. And Neil, I know that your son has diabetes and, and I had to accept it and say, okay, so you live with it. What does living with it mean? It means thinking about your diet, thinking about your therapy. It means uh, checking the amount of sleep that you get. It means limiting the amount of alcohol that you drink because anything over than really the government recommended allowance drives your anxiety through the roof. So uh, and th that, that was the starting point. And then the, the next step was probably where you're getting to, Keith, which is, but it's actually brought me some positive things. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's brought me an appreciation and empathy for other human beings, which is absolutely vital in the coaching and culture work that I do inside organizations to make them better places to work. Um, it's given me a heightened understanding of other human beings. Again, great for the work that I do. I also think, and this is a non-scientific perspective, that the creative side I have, which allows me to come up with, I hope, innovative solutions for clients and to write stuff, be it client communications or, or books, also comes from the part of my brain that has bipolar. I think it's the yin and the yang of that. And so I do something that has almost taken my life on a number of occasions and which may still take my life. Um, and I, I'm aware of that. It has brought me things that are a blessing. I know that sounds completely odd, but it absolutely has. And it's brought me a new network of people that I really, really value through writing things like breaking the glass floor. So I, I, it's it's a incredibly personal book and 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 you do talk about you know some of the dark places that you've gone to and and that still still exist um but you do talk about that positivity as well and you just mentioned this you're your best when you're connecting with people and making human situations better and i love that line because as you just said that creativity that comes with you know, bipolar and, and, and the different views that you have in both corporate world and, and working independently too, it does bring you a different perspective, right? It does. It absolutely does. And I think um, it, it's enabled me to read people better and read yeah. situations better. I think it's enabled me to shape conversations uh, with people I'm coaching in ways that uh, is more intuitive um, and and helps get them to uh, a, a better solution. Um, 
yeah, it's, it's changed my perspective on a, a number of things, you know, my view on life and uh, what, what is the, what is the meaning of life? Um, having, having decided on many occasions that I didn't want it. Um, and weirdly knowing that that day may come again. Um, and that's tough for somebody like David to live with knowing that i I may decide that actually I'm done fighting. Uh, so it, it does change your perspective. You know, I, I, you talk about David and, and David's perspective, and I found David's perspective in the book very emotional. Um, you know, him as a life partner and his experiences are, again, so personal. But I also think his perspective is so reassuring to others who are living with someone who's, you know, who, who's got mental health issues and, and someone that they love. Um, you know, for me, if you're liking this to, to the work scenario and, and, and you've mentioned this before, but allowing people to, to have training and learning developments that shouldn't just be a tick in the box. It should be about really understanding people and really understanding characters and how people face up to, to their demons is so important. And, you know, I took that out from, from David's comments and, you know, it, it was a really, I don't know, it was, it was personal, but I just hope it kind of kicks on that message to others, right? I hope so. I, I, I hope that uh, it allows the start of a conversation that builds in terms of honesty and impact. And I've, I've been lucky enough to do a number of talks on, on breaking the glass floor and mental health in the workplace. And, you know, thanks to COVID, people are working at home and people have sent me emails saying, I really found it helpful because I don't have mental health issues, but my wife, my husband, my partner who does was listening in and it allowed us to have a conversation, a new type of conversation at home about it. And back to Keith's earlier point about COVID, I think the the imaginary walls between home and work are blurring and... Uh, mental health is one of those places where um, that that needs to happen the most because it, it some we can all have a mental health issue. Somebody can have a mental health issue for two hours, two weeks, two months, two years, or their entire life, and it doesn't matter what period of time you have it over, it's still valid and valuable. And so we need to be able to talk about those who are having a mental issue, mental health issue, for two hours as much as we talk about those who are having it uh for for eternity because it's a bit like saying well i know your your broken leg is really hurting in the office right now but we can't talk about it because that 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 bloke over there he's got ms and well you know what that lasts a lifetime so you know um so i we we must have a dialogue and discussion around this there's one area tom which we haven't touched on yet which is um the name of the book so breaking the glass floor, why did you call it that? And actually, you know, by the end of the book, I was thinking you were going to call it something else. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I suppose it's a spoiler alert really, isn't it? Um, I, I, part of my journey to discussing and explaining living with bipolar required me to come up with a metaphor uh, of what it was like on any given day. And my metaphor was, it's like walking on a glass floor. 
sometimes you can run and dance on that floor, bounce on it for days, hours, weeks, um, never months in my case, usually days, weeks if I was lucky. And all of a sudden, something comes along and it can be something as seemingly benign as a crossword or a snarky email for some, from someone or uh, an odd look from someone which ignites the bully on the shoulder and fuels the self-loathing. And it's like someone has taken a sledgehammer to that glass floor and it shatters below your feet. And all of a sudden, you tumble into an abyss that you can hardly climb out of and so you're walking on this glass floor that you know is fragile um, it can be strong because you fight you fight every single day but you never know when it's going to shatter and shatter it will um, and so I thought that was a really good metaphor for describing it until I met somebody wise who told me it was a really shitty metaphor and they explained why it was a shitty metaphor but to understand why it's a shitty metaphor you'll have to read the book tom thank you um such a important vital critical conversation for many organizations to be having um today with their people never more so important as you just mentioned with covid and people at home um but your personal account i would hope would raise a number of questions and help a number of conversations with people um, everywhere so thank you ever so much for writing it um, I would hope people download from Amazon um, it's a it's a wonderful read and uh, you know I, I think we should really pick up on this conversation again Keith what do you think yeah absolutely I, I couldn't agree more I think it's a it's a really great starting point for people to have these conversations um, with themselves firstly um, but then with their partners and with their um, with their colleagues um, so yeah, thank you, Tom, for starting the conversation, um, and hopefully we can we can pick it up again in a future episode. Thanks, boys. That was not as uh, painful as I thought it would be, and uh, maybe I'll get used to sitting on this side of the fence. It was uh, it was quite reflective. Thank you so much. Hysterionics will be back in a short while. Uh, Clancy will be back with us as well. We will be picking up on the conversation on mental health at various points. But in the meantime, please uh, encourage friends and family to listen if you think they'll find us of interest. And uh, in the meantime, please stay safe, everybody. Until next time.